Good morning. Okay, we're still in First Peter, so as Nate just encouraged you, feel free to turn there uh, as we kind of kind of roll in and get into this morning. I want to encourage us this this sermon this morning and in, in our series, kind of today is another tag on part of what we went into last week. So there's about a three or four week piece here that all kind of builds on each other. So we're not going to repeat everything we talked about last week. If you missed that, feel free to jump back, whether you're joining us in person or online today. Go back. You can pick up all those on our website or on the app. Listen to it in case you need to get up to speed. But if you are looking at your notes in your, in your app or online, there is a little bit of a review from last week. So that gets us ready for what we're looking at today. We talked extensively last week about this topic of submission. Remember, as we're walking our way through First Peter, we've made a little bit of a transition from the first two chapters into this part of chapter two going forward, where originally we're talking about this great salvation that God has given us. And while everything else we will talk about actually relates back to that great salvation, we made a transition last week in talking about this idea of submission. And submission, while not being one of our favorite ideas in the world, is very important to our spiritual growth. It is a key to us knowing, understanding, and understanding what it means to follow Jesus. Today, we'll dig a little bit deeper into where Paul, Peter here is talking about the idea that this submission is not new to us, and it's not something that we have to figure out on our own. So as we walk our way through this morning, there's a couple verses on the tail end that are actually kind of the main piece. So we'll get there quickly, but the biggest idea is this. Jesus has gone before us. He's gone before us in all things, including this idea of submission, as he did the Father's will perfectly, without spot or blemish. And as he entered into it, he followed the Father's will, even when it came at his own personal, physical, emotional, or spiritual detriment. He followed what the Father had given him. This kind of submission is what we talk about as we get into some of these hard topics. Last week, we talked about this idea of respecting and honoring the authorities that God has allowed to be in our lives in this world. That does not, again, mean all the time following every word they say. But it does mean that even when you do disagree or move away from what the authorities in this world tell us, it has to be for God's reasons and it has to be graciously. So as we get in today, we're going to talk about this idea of Inscriptions as servants and masters, but I, I want to give us a little context for this. So it's not just servants as that word kind of conjures up ideas in our minds. In, in historical and ancient times, there was kind of a caste system. So there was a couple different levels of people in society. And one of those levels was where most of the Christians existed, and that was in the working class, which meant they had bosses. They had employers, they had masters. This word masters is, is more someone who is over you and what you're doing every day and in the work of your hands. So today, when we talk about this, I, I think it's good for us to make sure we understand the scriptural context, the historical context, and don't get too caught up with the, the first couple of phrases and get totally offline because we don't have a lot of time to unpack that historical context today because Frankly, there's a couple verses here towards the end of our section, verses 24 and 25, where we need to really hone in. So we're going to spend a little time getting there, and then we'll kind of settle there. So the title of last week's sermon was How to Be Free Servants for the Lord's Sake. 
The title of this week's sermon is How to Be Free Servants for Our Own Sake. See, this idea of being freed servants, Jesus sets us completely free from the bondage of sin, from the bondage of being under uh, evil or different things that would detract us from our walk with him. We've been set free once we are in Christ. And I want to give us a precursor now. If you're listening, if you're here in the room or listening somewhere else and you haven't been set free in Christ, some of today won't make sense to you. But the idea of knowing who Jesus is and what he's done for you can set you free to understand it. So if you haven't been set free in Christ, as we talk about what to do with our earthly relationships, whether it's the governmental authorities or authorities in this world or today, employers or the people we work for, see, if you don't know Christ, these ideas will not make sense to you at all. Because the world doesn't want you to live this way. But as believers... God empowers us to live completely different so that in our world, as people watch us, they will be attracted to the light that only comes from Jesus. So today as we talk about what it means to endure with grace as Jesus endured for you and I, we're going to pull apart a few things, but most of all this morning, I want us to be amazed with what God's done through Jesus. Because a couple of verses today that we're going to talk about should really humble us and also energize us to move forward. Let's read today. We're going to start in verse 18. Okay, we're going to read all the way down through the end of the chapter this morning, verse 25. So follow along with me, whether it's on your phones or in an app or, or with your Bible right in front of you. First Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseers, over, overseer of your souls. May God bless the reading of his word this morning, and as we dig into it, it's really verses 24 and 25 that are the crux of our text this morning, and I would even say that verses 24 and 25 are the crux of the entire Christian life to know and absorb what God has done for us through Jesus. And frankly, if you're you're saying, Pastor Rob, you seem to talk about that every week. You're right. That's pretty much it for us as Christians. There are lots of other things that we can talk about in this world, but if we do not relate and connect them to what Jesus has done for us, they're meaningless. They're meaningless. 
We have to center on the foundation that God has given to us in Jesus. If we do that, we will not be like sheep wandering around without a shepherd. We will instead be sheep that lovingly and graciously come under the guiding leadership of our great shepherd. So that's our prayer this morning, that we would be people that look like that. So let's talk about how. Verse 18 and 20. The first point I want to kind of drive home for us this morning is this. What does it mean to be gracious? What does it mean to be gracious? Words are important. We talk about this often. They mean things. But if you don't define what they mean, then you can come up with your own definition. What is God relating to us here when he uses this example and calls us to be gracious in the midst of unjust circumstances? It means this. I mean, to sum up these first two verses, it doesn't do you any good. You get no credit. You don't get any pats on the back when life is going your way and you're happy with it. That's just kind of the summation there, okay? I know it's not exactly what it says in Scripture, but that's the idea. If life is rolling along smoothly and you are in a good mood and you love everyone around you and people look at you and say, man, that person's just enthused with life and everything is going smooth and swimmingly for you, that is not to your credit. What is to your credit as a Christian is when things don't go your way and you keep the same attitude. There's a quote that I read a long time ago and I I wrote it down And it's just stuck in my head continuously. It's this. A person's spiritual maturity is not truly visible until they don't get their way. I'm going to read that again for us. Ready? A person's spiritual maturity is not truly visible until they don't get their way. Then you see the real person. We all know this. We know this about ourselves. If you are married, you know this in your marriage. If you have children, you have experienced this. If you have ever met another human being and walked around with them for more than 10 minutes, you know this to be true. A person's spiritual maturity comes out when things are hard, not when they're easy. This is what Peter is talking about here. He's saying... It's great if you have a great boss and he gives you everything you need and you are happy with that. That's wonderful, but it's no credit to you. It's a credit to your boss. But what really shows character is when you have a boss who is unjust and you don't appreciate the way they're treating you. And... You live for Jesus and have joy in your heart and you're respectful and gracious to that boss. In the midst of that, that speaks of Jesus. Because just being happy when you get what you want speaks to you. Being joyous and gracious when you don't get what you want, that speaks to Jesus. See, what Peter's doing here, what God's doing through Peter, what he inspires Peter to do here is he inspires Peter to remind us that life is not about you and I. Life is not about you, and it's not about me, and it's not about what we want. Now, that is not an easy reality. I'm in the same boat with you. I don't get my way 
I have to hit pause for a moment and ask myself, how am I going to respond? This is why responding in the moment is dangerous. Because the first thing I know for me, and maybe you're not like me, although I guess you are, I'm guessing you are, okay? And I know some of you, I know some of you are. But if you're like me, when you don't get your way, the first reaction is usually not the best one. That's usually the flesh. But when you do hit pause and you remind yourself and the Holy Spirit is allowed to come over your emotions and your initial response and say to you, who's going to get the glory for this, Rob? Then you have to answer. Am I going to fight this out? Am I going to push my way through? Am I going to get the glory? Because that's really going nowhere. Or am I going to step back and allow God to get the glory? Because I'm going to remain the way that he's called me to be, whether I get what I want or I don't. Whether my boss is great or he is unjust. See, there is a theology of work in the Bible. And it's healthy to know what God's theology of work is. How do we understand God in our everyday jobs? We spend, you spend way more time at your job than you do here. So if you don't know how the gospel informs you to be in your job, then you're wasting the majority of your week. But if you do understand how the gospel informs and changes every area, including your work, then you're moving your way towards greater spiritual maturity and you're seeing the gospel flesh itself out in all that you do. So, God's gracious to us that in chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, he really digs deep and reminds us of all of God's great blessings through our salvation. And now he's hitting us with the hard ones. What are you going to do when you disagree with the authorities? What are you going to do when you don't like what you're doing at work? See, this is where the rubber meets the road. Again, you truly know a person's spiritual maturity when they don't get what they want. So how are we going to live as believers? What is that going to look like in our lives? What does it mean to be gracious? It means to respond like Jesus does. Respond like Jesus does. We'll dig into that and what that looks like in a couple minutes. So hold on to that one. Next, verses 21 to 23 say this. For to you, for to this, you have been called. What have we been called to? Look at the previous couple verses. 18 through 20 says, be gracious while suffering unjustly. Do good even when good is not done to you. Be a reflection of Christ even when you are being treated in a way that does not make sense to you, in a way that you have not earned. When something is happening, this is the thing. You can stay back and step back and say, I don't deserve this. I'm going to let them know. Or you can say, I don't deserve this. But you know what else you didn't deserve? You know where I'm going here. What else you didn't deserve is you didn't deserve to have all your sins forgiven. But you got that anyway. So don't worry so much about what you don't deserve in this everyday life. You've already gotten the greatest thing that you never deserved. 
eternal freedom in Jesus. So the next time your boss offends you or calls you out on something that's not your fault, guess what? It's not that big a deal. It's not going to go into eternity. You're not going to get to heaven and have to give an account for that. So don't worry about it. Let it go. Be gracious. Show the world what knowing what is eternally important actually looks like. We've been called to imitate Jesus, not the world. Verse 21, for to this you have been called. To what? That means look back to being gracious in the midst of unjust circumstances. Why? For to this you have been called, in verse 21, because, this is why we've been called to it, and this is super important. You have to know the why. If you don't know the why, you will get off track. Because we constantly think the why is about us. That's our flesh. The why is not about you and I. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Now, he could have just stopped there and put a period. And that would be it. But he knows we need a little more encouragement than that. See, we've been called to live this way because Christ suffered unjustly way more than you and I are ever going to suffer unjustly. Way more. But Christ suffered unjustly, so we're called to reflect that, to imitate him, not imitate the world. He goes on, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What did Christ do? He didn't lie. He didn't commit sin. He didn't revile in return. That's a tough one. Somebody reviles you. What do we mean by revile? Somebody speaks something about you that's not true. How often in the depths of your heart, or maybe even right on the edge of your heart, maybe even right on the tip of your tongue, does when somebody says something that's not true about you, you immediately think, well, I got something to say about them. You know how I'm going to invalidate that? I'll invalidate them. And you know what God says? Don't worry about that. Invalidate what they're saying by living for Jesus. Give them no foothold. It's not okay to revile someone back when they revile you. That just looks like the world. That's the only response that somebody who doesn't know Jesus has. They have to respond that way. It's all they got. But for those of us who are in Christ, the response looks completely different. Somebody says something bad about you or somebody says something bad about me, this is, should be our response as Christians. Yeah, it's actually worse than that. If you really knew what was going on down here in my heart, you'd probably say worse stuff. Instead, we respond by saying, Jesus suffered more than I'm ever gonna and he was way more just, completely just than I'm ever gonna be. So how do I respond like him? Anyone can fight back. Anyone can do that. 
You don't have to teach human beings to fight back. Have you ever watched a two-year-old? You don't have to teach it. It just happens. And while we're talking about that, take a moment and pray for our volunteers in the back and the kids' wing. There are whole rooms of these little ones, right? That haven't gotten this, don't revile when you've been reviled. <laughs> don't do that. They haven't gotten that yet, okay? They're responding in the flesh because that's all they know. So you don't have to teach that to a human. What do you have to learn? What do we have to learn? We have to learn to respond like Jesus. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to change who we are and how we live. Because naturally, it's real easy to do the opposite. Anyone can fight back. Anyone. You don't have to know Jesus to do that. Here's what you do have to know Jesus to do. It takes a spirit-filled Christian to submit and let God fight our battles. See, that takes the work of the Holy Spirit. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, it takes that kind of power to get us from fighting back every time we think we should. And instead, submitting to God and say, I'm going to let him fight our battles. I'm going to let him fight my battles for me. This is one of the greatest examples of Jesus at the cross, right? We watch what he did, and the key is to imitate it in life. Let's keep moving. Verse 20, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. See, God graciously, when he says something that we could totally get off track for, because I know, I know, I'm telling you to respond in the way that Jesus did, but in the back of your head, you're still making excuses. It's okay, we're human. That's why God puts 24 and 25 at the end of this. Because he wants us to be abundantly clear why we've been called to live that way. No questions asked after this statement. In every situation in life, in every situation, our great salvation should be in the front of our minds and our hearts. And we should live and respond like it to those around us. In every situation. God's bringing us there, right? In society, in authority, when we're relating to government, we've already talked about that, how to respond like a Christian. At work, with our bosses, or even our fellow employees, how are we to respond like a Christian? See, God is building for us this outlaying of saying, no matter what, follow Jesus. Just follow Jesus. Three key statements that we can see from these verses. As we look to Christ, he is our example in his life. Look to how he lived. Seek to imitate his life and yours. He is our example in his life. He is our substitute in his death. See, verses 24 and 25 are a reminder that we should have died the death that Christ did. But because he did, we get to live. Because he died, 
in our place, we live for eternity with him. That is an amazing truth. That's where the good news comes from, the best news. That's it. We deserved one thing. He gave us something totally separate. He is our example in his life. He is our substitute in his death. And he is our watchful shepherd in heaven. Verse 25 reminds us, as we've talked about before, when going through the trials of life, God has his hand on the thermostat and his eye on the clock. He knows exactly what you need and when you should have it. He doesn't miss things. He's a good shepherd, Psalm 23. He's a watchful shepherd, as seen here. He oversees life for us. So are we going to give him his rightful place in our lives? Are we going to follow him knowing that he knows better than us? You ever watch a sheep with a shepherd? I know we don't like being put in this category, but the reality is sheep are dumb animals. They just are. You watch, they're not intelligent creatures. They walk right into trouble all the time. And then they can't get out. This is what God is likening us to. So the best place for sheep to be is in the careful overseeing of a shepherd that is taking care of them. And then when he redirects them, they don't have to always know why and they don't have to always know what's around the corner. They trust him. He just moves them this way. Why? Because he knows what's up around the corner. Off in the distance, he might see that wolf. He might see that cliff. He might see a briar patch. Whatever that is for those sheep. And the shepherd moves them away. So while everything in our lives doesn't look like we know exactly why things should be happening, trust the overseer of your souls. Trust him. He is our example in his life. He is our substitute in his death. And he is our watchful shepherd in heaven. How is he as our example in his life? In spite of the fact that he was sinless in both word and deed, he suffered at the hands of the authorities. So what does that mean for you and me? We are not sinless in our words and deeds. So when particular suffering comes our way, we should endure it as Christ did. Think about how Peter was thinking about this example. Because remember, Peter was there. He watched. He saw it happen. When Jesus was on trial, Peter was in the courtyard. So it's abundantly clear to Peter that he's not sinless in his words or deeds because we all know how he responded. But he also got to watch Jesus respond. When Pilate, when it looked like Jesus was on trial and Pilate was in control, you want to know who really was on trial? Pilate. Jesus wasn't on trial. He already knew what was going to happen. He had entrusted himself to the one who always judges justly. There was no trial involved for Jesus whatsoever. The only trial was how was Pilate going to handle this situation? Jesus knew what the outcome was going to be, and he had already submitted himself to the Father and to his will. The trial and the multiple trials that Christ went through, they were a mere formality. 
and he endured well, he proved that you can be right in the center of God's will, greatly loved by God, and still suffer unjustly. Think about that for a second. Jesus proved to us, showed us, you can be directly in the center of the will of the Father, greatly loved by him, and still suffer unjustly. So this weak theology and low view of God the Father and his sovereignty that's kind of pervading Christianity everywhere, that if you follow God well, you'll have no suffering involved, it is a lie. It is not true. It's a mockery of Jesus in the cross. Jesus proved it to us. He was directly in the center of God's will, fully submitted, doing exactly what the Father asked him to do, loved beyond all measure by the Father in heaven and suffered unjustly. But he entrusted himself to the overseer of his soul and the good shepherd, the Father in heaven. So Jesus' humility in the midst of submission and in the midst of trial is what we need to imitate. That's how he is an example in our lives. He is also our substitute in his death. And this simple truth, the reality of Jesus being our substitute in his death, is a whole series of sermons. But if you want to dig deeply into what Peter is talking about here, Peter's mind is going back to Isaiah 53. So you can make a little note of that. Isaiah 53 is what is coming to Peter's attention. He uses some similar phrasing here as the prophet Isaiah does. Because in Isaiah, Jesus is coming, the Messiah's coming, suffering and affliction was prophesied about. So then when Peter watched it happen, it all came together for him. God's had this as part of his plan since eternity past. He knew exactly what he needed to do to save all of humanity. And he sent his son to do it. He is our substitute in his death. I wrote down a couple phrases here. The paradoxes of the cross never cease to amaze me. They never cease to amaze me. Look at the wording here. He bore our sins in his body that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus died so that we can live. He carried our sins so that we don't have to carry him. See, these paradoxes of the gospel that happened at the cross, they are unendingly amazing if we slow down and just look at it clearly. He died that we might live. We then, in our Christian lives, we die with him to sin so that we can live to righteousness. So a few weeks ago, we talked about this bondage of sin and how hard it is for us to actually put sin to death in our lives instead of just kind of like moving it into the other corner. But we need to die to sin in order to live to him. See, these verses, when it talks about by his wounds you have been healed, he's not talking about physical healing. He's talking about spiritual healing for eternity. One day we will have glorified bodies. Those who are in Christ will rise and be with him in a glorified state that is absent from sin and brokenness and sickness. But meanwhile, even some of God's choicest servants will have suffering and affliction in this world. 
Yesterday, I had the privilege of being part of a remembrance for a faithful servant of God. And every time God asks me to be part of a funeral or just be present for a funeral or memorial of somebody who has served Jesus well, I think he just graciously says to me the same thing every single time. This world is not what we live for. One day, we're going to die. It's what comes next that's important. And it's possible, and I've heard it over and over in my lifetime, and you all as a church, we've watched this happen continually. People who love Jesus and give their life to him, they live through this life, they live through afflictions, they live through physical sickness and hardships, and then they, and this is the word I love the most, they graduate to heaven. And they don't have all the bondage of this world, not only sin, but even physical. They go on to better things. He is our substitute so that for eternity we can live free. Thirdly, he's our watchful shepherd. How does this work? What does this look like? See, Jesus completely sets the script back the way it should be. In the Old Testament, the sheep died for the shepherd. You ever think about that? See, sheep, their only mission in life was to give wool for warmth and clothing and eventually was to die to sustain those who shepherded them around. See, in the Old Testament, the sheep died for the shepherd. But when Jesus comes, the shepherd dies for the sheep. Because he wants us to be that abundantly clear about how different things are in the kingdom of God. So in light of all that truth, we're supposed to live the way he's called us to live. The next time your flesh cries out, I don't deserve this. Remind your flesh of what you do deserve and instead what you've gotten in Christ. The next time that you really want to revile back in return, the next time you really want to make sure that your work environment is just for everyone, including me, the next time you want to create a ruckus in order to try to set things straight, just remember, every time we try to do that, we make a colossal mess of things. Let God be in charge of your life. He's the good overseer of your soul. And he cares and knows more about you than you will ever know. Let him direct your steps even when it seems difficult. The unsaved world is watching us. So Christians, remember that. Some people in this world will only know about Jesus what you show them. Because maybe something's happened in their past and they don't want to listen to you. They don't want to hear your words. Maybe they don't want to hear my words. But there are some people in this world that will only know what you believe about God by how you live. And that should draw them in. The unsaved world is watching us. We can submit to him. We can know that he will work everything together for our glory, for our good and his glory. Because of Jesus, because of verses 24 and 25, and the reality of what Jesus has done for us at the cross 
and through the resurrection, we can have peace in the midst of every circumstance. We can have grace in the midst of every trial. And we can have hope in the midst of every loss. So remember that God has called you to live differently. And remember why. That's what this section is about. Don't get too caught up in the work idea. Because here's the same thing. As he goes on, and Peter's going to go on and talk about more relationships in the home and family and marriages, he's going to keep talking about this because here's the, the concept. The examples of how to live for Jesus are endless because it's in every area of your life and every decision you make and every relationship you maintain. Every single one is an opportunity to either imitate Christ or reflect ourselves. You and I have a job to do. We're called to do it in this world. And not only are we called and not only are we given a task, but we are then empowered by the Holy Spirit to do everything he's called us to do. So have hope. Live with grace and rest in peace in this world that looks a mess but really isn't. The great overseer of our souls, the shepherd in heaven, sees every single thing and is walking with you through it. Today, as we close our service and as we respond, we're going to respond in singing in a minute and through prayer. And then we're going to send and we're all going to go our separate ways. And I know just as much as you do, it's very easy to walk out of here and by this afternoon, forget what we talked about. So even if you forget any of the words I've said this morning, here's what I want you to remember. Just go back to 1 Peter 2 and read it. Go back. Know what God said to you. Know what he's empowered you to do and remind yourself of it every day, every hour if you need it. But go back to God's word and know. He's called us to live in a way that shows the world what Jesus is like. And Jesus went before us as our example, as our substitute, and he goes with us as our shepherd. What a good God we have. Amen? His grace is so much beyond what we deserve. Let's live like it. Are you with me?